Okay, once again, we have the opportunity to come into the presence of the Lord to hear the word of the Lord, to turn our attention to the pages of Scripture and to open our hearts for the Holy Spirit to speak to us a word that might set us free. Every time God speaks to us, He speaks to us for the purpose of setting us free. And the word of God, it brings us life, but sometimes it brings us life by first putting some things to death in our hearts and minds. This is part three of our series entitled, Not Today, Satan. And the whole purpose of this series is really to expose the work of the devil, the work of the enemy in our lives. And the purposes of the work of the enemy are threefold. Number one, to steal. Number two, to kill. And number three, to destroy. And so it's important that we walk in victory over every attempt of the enemy to steal, to kill, and to destroy our lives. And that is the focus of this message. What I want us to do this is a, an important message, I believe, but I think it's important that we open our own hearts because it's so easy for us to hear this message and think of somebody else who probably needs it. This, this one might be a little bit harder to hear it and say, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn your heart and mind to the pages of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 30. Matthew 12, 22 through 30. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds, that you would expose the work of the enemy, and that you would set us free today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to invite you today to hear Jesus, not Christianity, not church, Jesus. This is why I love the Bible, because especially the Gospels, they show us Jesus, and they give us the opportunity to hear the word of Jesus. Jesus was not a Christian. The Christian faith is all about seeking to be like Jesus, to imitate him. And, uh, you know, last week we looked at a passage of Scripture in which Jesus singled out this woman who had been bent over. Jesus loved to single people out. He was 
great at illustrating truths in powerful ways by highlighting individuals and dealing with circumstances. And uh, everything that Jesus dealt with publicly in one person, he often did to expose publicly in other persons. And, and we're going to see how this works. So Matthew, in this passage of scripture, he starts by telling us about this man in the crowd that Jesus deals with. And Matthew says the man was demon-possessed so that he was both blind and mute. He had physical symptoms, blindness, the inability to see, and he was mute. He was unable to speak. And in this particular circumstance, it seems to have been common knowledge that it was the result of a demon because Matthew does not argue for it. He does not explain it. Uh, he simply states matter-of-factly the man was demon-possessed. And Jesus dealt with these physical symptoms by casting out the devil. And when the devil went out of the man, the man could both see and speak. We've seen similar situations in the third world, especially in Indonesia. Uh, there was a woman who was delivered in one of our services. I didn't know what was going on, but she, was, uh, she had been unable to speak for three years. And she manifested a demon in one of our services. And we went over and cast the devil out of her. And she went home and started speaking. She started talking and they couldn't believe. They didn't know what had happened to her in the service. But the result of her deliverance, there was a physical manifestation of freedom in her. The interesting thing, <clears throat> excuse me, the interesting thing in this particular passage of scripture is that Matthew just kind of states it matter-of-factly. It's just like, yeah, the guy was demon-possessed. And Jesus cast the demon out, and the guy could see and hear. There's no narrative about it. Like, there's no dialogue. There's no, the man was, this is what the man looked like. And his aunt and uncle brought him. And his sister was like, there's no details whatsoever. And when Jesus, you know, Jesus called him out in the midst of the service. And, and then the demon convulsed him on the ground. Like, there was no detail at all. It's almost like Matthew's trying to quickly get past that. Because that's actually not what this, this particular section of the narrative is about. This particular passage of scripture is actually not even about the man. It's about the response to the man. So Jesus deals with one level of the work of the devil by casting the blind mute demon out of this man in order to expose another level of the work of the devil, which had to do with the response to the casting of the blind mute demon out of this man. Now, there's one phenomenon, the healing of this man, and there's two responses. The crowds, the multitudes, are amazed. They're filled with amazement. And they draw from what they have observed a messianic interpretation or a messianic conclusion. Could this be the son of David? the long-awaited son of David, the one the prophets prophesied about, the one that we have been waiting for, the one that would sit on the throne of his father David and restore the kingdom to Israel. Is this the guy? Is this who we've been waiting for? So the crowds are seeing the clear work of God and then reflecting on that work of God in light of what they've read in Scripture and applying what they've read in Scripture to what they see God doing, which is perfect. 
the, the hermeneutic or the, the strategy of interpretation of this event on the part of the crowd is perfect. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to observe the clear work of God and interpret it in light of Scripture. That's what the crowds were doing. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, when they hear the crowds, they articulate a perspective that is completely opposite of that of the crowds. The Pharisees say, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So their conclusion is, no, 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 no. This is not God at work. This is Satan at work. Now, I want us to understand the severity of that accusation. I want us to understand the strategy that the Pharisees employed by making that accusation. This man does not, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. In other words, Beelzebub is another name for Satan. So literally, they're saying he casts out Satan by the power of Satan. So what he's doing is satanic. So there were three reasons why the Pharisees used this argumentation. Number one, they were seeking to completely destroy the credibility of Jesus in the eyes of the people. And it was, a, you know, basically they did so to scare the people. What, what they wanted the people to conclude is that associating with Jesus is the same as associating with Satan. So they wanted to destroy his credibility. Um, but secondly, um, they were actually threatening this level of intimidation. It bore a threat because they were threatening his life, literally, because sorcery was actually a capital offense in Israel at that time. And so um, they were threatening not only to destroy his ministry and his, his credibility and his reputation and his character, but his life. I mean, literally, this threat, if it's true, uh, Jesus would have had to be put to death. And so... At first, it seems like, man, if Jesus only had like been private when he healed that guy, like if he would have done it less publicly, he wouldn't have subjected himself, subjected himself to these types of accusations. But in actuality, Jesus knew that that was coming, and he did this thing publicly to solicit that response. He wanted to publicly deal with this particular manifestation and work of Satan not just for those who were standing by, but for our benefit as well. And this story is contained in Scripture because it's not just for those who were standing by. It's for us today. Jesus was exposing something that is core to Satan's strategy that he didn't just use on, on Jesus. He uses on us all the time. So Jesus, the first response of Jesus, is he's dealing with their logic. He says, by Beelzebub, he says, if, say, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, then his kingdom is divided against itself and it cannot stand. The first thing Jesus is saying is, do you know how ridiculous it is to suggest that I cast out Satan by Satan? If Satan is the ruler of demons, why would he attack his own demonic forces? Like, do you know how absurd and ridiculous it is to think that darkness could drive out darkness? to think that Satan could drive out Satan, to think that Satan could cast out Satan. Number one, he's attacking their logic. He says, that's absolutely ridiculous. But then the second thing he does is he confronts them 
with the consequences, the unintended consequences of their accusation. He says, but by the way, if it's not Satan, then it's got to be God. In other words, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, it doesn't make sense because his kingdom is divided against itself and it can't stand. But if I'm not casting out demons by Satan, then it must be the Spirit of God. And if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Translation, if it's not Satan, it's got to be God. And if it's God, you just done messed up, eh, Aaron? Uh, you, you just got yourself in big trouble. Because you just attributed the work of God to Satan. In other words, Jesus flips the script on this accusation by saying, in actuality, your accusation reveals more about you than it does me. You see, the whole point of this encounter, of this narrative, of this story, is that accusation says more about the accuser than it says about the accused. Jesus is literally saying to these Pharisees, by making this accusation that you just made, you just exposed yourself. You just showed us who you are. You actually haven't said anything about me. It doesn't, it actually doesn't even make, what you just said about me doesn't make a lick of sense. You just exposed yourself. You just told us who you are. Jesus deals with one work of Satan in healing the man, but now he's dealing with the second work of Satan in confronting the accusation of the Pharisees. This is an important message. You've got to hear me today. In Revelation 12, I believe it's verse 10, there is a particular title given to Satan that actually identifies his vocation. He is called, in this verse of Scripture, the accuser of the brethren. This is his vocation. This is his full-time job. It's his passion. It's not only his passion, but it corresponds to his gift. It's his nature. It's his mission. Accuse the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren. When he lays down to sleep at night, he's thinking, hmm, how am I going to accuse the brethren tomorrow? When he wakes up in the morning, he's thinking, hmm, I think I've got some fresh ideas for accusing the brethren. I'm going to accuse the brethren. He does not rest. He does not sleep, but he looks for more ways to accuse the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren. It's his purpose. It's his mission. It's his identity. It is his vocation. It's his passion. And he will do it in every possible way. Now, I just want to reflect on this for a second. If you were Satan, why would you want to accuse the brethren? Think about how terrible it must be to be Satan. To know who you are to know where you came from and to know that you don't have a chance.
Can I say that if there's anyone who knows that the word of God is true, it's Satan. Is there, if there's anyone who knows what his destiny is, that his end is destruction and everlasting torment, it's Satan. And so to be Satan would be to live in constant torment and condemnation. And so accusing the brethren is the means by which he deflects his own condemnation upon the people of God. The reason I'm saying that is because what we must understand is that when we become willing vehicles of the accusation of the enemy, we become his instruments in the deflection of his own condemnation and we make him smile because he has succeeded in using God's children to deflect his own condemnation upon others of God's children. Jesus was exposing the work of Satan. Accusation. You know, I mean, if you know me, you know that I love social media. I enjoy social, not love, I enjoy. My daughter corrects me because I taught her when she was very young that uh, most of the stuff that we say we love, you should just use the word like. Because, uh, you know, the distinction is if you actually love something, you're willing to die for it. And so, you know, if, if you tell my daughter, I love ice cream, she's like, would you die for it? So, no, you like ice cream. So I, I like social media. I wouldn't die for it, but I like it. I enjoy Facebook and so forth, Instagram. But the one thing I don't like is it has become a vehicle of accusation that the enemy absolutely adores. When you see Facebook accounts that there, there's people on Facebook and, a, and most, a lot of them are believers, but even believer and non-believer alike, where it seems like you live to accuse somebody. Every post is, a, is about somebody that you're accusing of something. Every single post is this, these liberals or these conservatives or these white people or these black people or these Asians or these Trumpites or these anti-Trumpers or these uh, socialists or these, uh, you know... Bernie, no, Obama, no, Trump. These heck of fake Christians, these lukewarm Christians, no, these pharisaical Christians, and it's all an accusation. If your entire life is one big accusation, something is wrong with you. If you can't sleep at night without leveling an accusation against somebody, yeah, there's people who... <laughs> In our day and age, there's people who try to make a name for themselves by attacking others who have made a name for themselves. And they claim to do it out of love. Oh, no, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me, and that's why I wrote this long article about why this person is a heretic and preaches a false gospel. It's the love of Christ that compels me. 
Well, did the love of Christ compel you to put it on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram? No, that was your desire for a following. That wasn't the love of Christ. But the love of Christ, reach out to them personally. You say, well, reach out to them personally. Well, they wouldn't listen to me. Well, um, number one, exactly. Why would anybody, why should anybody listen to you? And number two, um, they've got a Facebook page. Send them a private message in that Facebook page. If they don't listen to you, it's none of your business. Why, why is it that important to you to accuse others? And this is, this is really the key that I'm getting at today. People who, when accusation becomes your primary form of communication, what it reveals about you is that you are dealing with the condemnation of the enemy. And your tactic for soothing yourself, your self-soothing mechanism for dealing with all of that condemnation is sharing it with others. Deflecting it. And oftentimes, especially when it comes to issues of morality, what a person communicates that they hate the most is typically the very thing that they themselves are struggling with. I mean, you see the most anti-gay person out there who has to communicate how much they hate homosexuality and how much of an affront it is to God. Sometimes that's the gayest one. That person who can't stop talking about fornicators and how God's going to destroy them. Accusation often reveals that you can't seem to deal with the condemnation in your own heart. Maybe you got free, okay, so you've been free for about 36 hours, and so now you feel qualified to call it out in everybody and talk about how the whole world is going to hell and the whole church is full of, of, of heresy because nobody's preaching against this anymore. And you just got free from it three days ago. And not realizing that accusation causes you to fall right into the trap of the enemy. And at the end of the day, what God is seeking to do in exposing this lie of the enemy, in exposing this tactic of Satan, this Jezebel spirit, and real, I mean, the Jezebel spirit, the whole point of how, how did Jezebel function? She brought accusation. She sought to bring down the prophets of God through accusation. To bring down the people of God through accusation, which Jesus refused to do. Even the woman caught in adultery, did he deal with her sin? Absolutely. After he had moved the crowds away, then he said, Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, but you got to stop sinning. Is sin a real issue? Of course sin is a real issue. But the concern of Jesus, you got to ask yourself, are you, 
And see, this is the key. And people say, well, Jesus was very confrontational. Yes, he was. Who did he confront? The Pharisees. He confronted the confronters. He confronted the, the people who were so religious that they couldn't see the sin in their own heart. All they saw was everybody else's sin. See, you can always tell that something is wrong if I only see what's wrong with others and there's no transparency in me. If I'm never telling you about my own stuff, if I'm never asking for prayer for my own stuff, if I'm never confessing that God showed me that I w I'm wrong in this area, if I haven't been confronted, if I haven't found the grace of Jesus Christ to deal with my own sin, it's easy for me to become accusatory in my approach to the world, the church, other brothers and sisters. And I used to be like that. I mean, it's funny. I was such a Pharisee when I was a college student. I mean, part of it was because I was so on fire. You know, I was so zealous and I was so, you know, ugh, I just love Jesus so much. And, and I spent so many hours in prayer and, and so many hours in Bible study. But I was so judgmental so judgmental. I would put a rebuke on you in a second. And part of it was because I wasn't old enough yet to have fallen into certain traps. And so I didn't have any humility. I wasn't aware of the frailty of my own walk with God. And the only way for you to be judgmental of others is to be completely oblivious to the frailty of your own faith. And this is why Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that if anyone is caught in a trespass, those who are spiritual, he said, restore them gently. Why? He said, do it with fear, knowing that you also can be tempted. And so Jesus, he's confronting this spirit of accusation. And he's saying, not today, Satan. This isn't going to stand in my presence. Not today, Satan. What if every believer had that attitude? Somebody tries to condemn or attacks another believer in your presence. Not today, Satan. Even another unbeliever in your presence. Not today, Satan. What if, what if this, is, this is truly the heart that I believe every Christian in the United States of America, every Christian should have, not only in the United States of America and the world. What if... Every time somebody tried to bash Donald Trump in your presence, you said, uh, you know, okay, I, I get your perspective, but, um, you know, he is our president, and I prefer not to bash him and call him names. What if every time somebody tried to bash Obama? I th see, there's a, there's a lot of believers that would say amen when I said that for Trump, but what about Obama? It's easy to defend the character of the person you agree with. But do we ever stop? Joy, be quiet. Joy, quiet. Joy, quiet. Sorry, guys. It's easy to defend the character of those with whom you agree. But for some reason in this country, we think it's okay in our culture to agree with attacks, accusations, and slander against people that we don't agree with. 
and it's part of the cultural ideology, it's part of the political idolatry that we have given ourselves over to in this country. And it's not right. What if we said, not today, Satan? Not today. What if, it, what if every time in your presence, another believer came and said, this person's a heretic, and said, no, not today, Satan, not today. You don't have to say it that way, but you just simply very politely say, you know, I totally get it. You have disagreements with this person, but I just really don't believe we're supposed to slander, accuse, or condemn really anybody. And you know what? If this person's theology is bad, the Lord will deal with them. How about just letting God be the judge? If you disagree, how about just living by a better standard instead of accusing and attacking and slandering. There's so much slander and backbiting in the church. And we don't realize it, but Satan laughs all the way to the bank every time we do it. And sometimes this is the scary thing about it. We feel so justified, but we don't stop and realize that you might inadvertently attack the work of God, something that God is doing by His Spirit, something that God has destined, something that God has sovereignly determined. That's a scary thought, that you might inadvertently and accidentally attack the work of God, like these Pharisees did. And in doing so, we find ourselves doing the work of the Pharisees and cooperating with the work of Satan himself. So how do I get free? It's very clear. This is, this is the point of the message. In order to get free of judgment and accusation against others, you got to get free from it in yourself. Because the whole reason that you would be drawn to attack and accuse others and slander others is because Satan has been slandering you and attacking you and accusing you. And if you could get free from those accusations of the enemy and step back and see how God has given you such a great deliverance, you would never be able to find it in your heart to accuse others as you have been accused, to condemn others as you have been condemned. You see, the tendency to judge and condemn it demonstrates a problem in your own heart that the enemy has been attacking you with condemnation. The enemy has been attacking you with accusation. And God wants to set you free from that today if you would simply open your heart. I know the enemy is fighting in your mind right now and trying to convince you that the people that you've been slandering and attacking and assassinating their character, that they deserve it. I'm not saying you can't criticize anyone. I'm not saying you, can't, saying you can't communicate disagreement. I'm simply saying that as believers in Jesus Christ, I believe that we have a responsibility to communicate disagreement with respect and dignity. That we should do it without slander. 
because I don't know. Listen, God may not agree with my politics in certain places. I think every believer needs to have the humility to confess that there may be particular areas of your politics that God doesn't agree with. I don't know about you, but I do not want to stand before God and hear him say, you slandered my work. So, the enemy had so many things to accuse me with, but he's been cast down in my life. And so knowing how God set me free from the accusations of the enemy, knowing how God canceled the written code which was against me, knowing how God took all of my sins and nailed them on the cross, how can I slander you? How can I accuse you? How can I attack you? If you would open your heart today, the Spirit of God would set you free from every voice of accusation the accusation of the enemy that brings condemnation to your own heart. And the result of that freedom doesn't mean your values will change. It doesn't mean your politics will change. It doesn't mean your perspectives will change. It doesn't mean your sense of what is right and wrong will change. It simply means that by the Spirit of God, you'll learn how to express yourself without accusation, without condemnation, without judgment, and without contempt. But it starts with freedom in your own heart. Let's pray. I want to invite you to say this prayer with me this morning. And I believe God will set you free. I don't care if you're a believer or not a believer. If this message spoke to your heart and you know that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on this place in your heart, you can be set free this morning. You simply need to just pray this prayer with me right now. I just want you to close your eyes and open your hands to the Lord and repeat after me. Say, Father, I come to you. First, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I have accused, I have slandered, and I have maligned others. Forgive me and wash me. But Lord, I ask you to set me free from the accusations and the slander of Satan by which he has attacked my own heart. Set me free. Wash me clean. Vindicate my heart by your love that I might live free of accusation and free of fear. In Jesus' mighty name. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God, I take authority over the accusation of the enemy against every one of your people under the sound of my voice. God, all who are hearing this message today and have felt condemned in their hearts and have, have walked in shame and condemnation because of the accusations of the enemy against their own hearts, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for freedom. And in Jesus' name, I say, not today, Satan. 
I say that those accusations go no further. I say that that condemnation, it stops right here. It goes no further. God, your people are not going to walk in condemnation and fear for another second. God, there's some under the sound of my voice who have been reminded of sins of their past that go back decades. Who feel condemned over stuff they did when they were 10 and 15 and 17 and 19 and 21 years old. And now they're in their 40s and some even older than that. But Father, right now in Jesus' name, I pray that you would wipe the slate clean and remove all of that condemnation and all of that shame. Because the blood of Jesus covers it all. And Lord, as you set us free from shame, I pray that you would change our vocation so that we would no longer participate with the activities of the accuser of the brethren. Instead, we would speak in agreement with the blood of Christ, and it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. It speaks forgiveness, reconciliation, hope, and peace. I thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name, amen.